Okay, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Uh, today, episode 26, reading Sutta Nipata, uh, moving to the next sutta in the second chapter, uh, which is 11 in the second chapter, called Rahula Sutta, advice to Rahula or on Rahula. Uh, Rahula, Rahula. Rahula was the son of Gautama. And um, some people will say, <clears throat> uh, I mean, it was an issue throughout history, the moral evaluation of Gautama himself as a new, as a father to a newborn who left his wife and child. And people with, I think, a, a more superficial understanding of the whole story, which is not just that, but there's a there's an after story to Gautama leaving his wife with their newborn, um, who of course had all the support and luxury or support and wealth and money um, that they needed, being the he being the son of a king and she being the wife of a prince and the child being well taken care of. There's the backstory or the the, the further story, which is what happened after the his birth. And so today, the, the Sutta, Tanasaro writes it up as Venerable Rahula reflects on the teachings he received from his father, the Buddha. There are two translations from Tanasaro and John Ireland. Uh, Ireland's translation is just some fragments, so I'm not going to read that because there's a lot of other stuff to look into. Uh, <clears throat> it's a very interesting story, not just the story of uh, Rahula's life as the physical son <laughs> of Gautama, um, but his personality. And we can get some kind of sense of a karmic stream or karma, karmic operation. Uh, you, one, <laughs> I would assume, one needs to have pretty good karma to be born the son of such a, of such a uh, father. Um who did massively uh, help his son um, after the son grew up, or just reached a, a young age, and we'll look, look into that. So the, the notion of uh, uh, the father abandoning uh, is a very um, superficial understanding of the whole, uh, of the whole situation. <clears throat> but there's the personality of Rahula himself, which from which we can get some sense of qualities of mind associated with such good karma, qualities of mind associated with that great karma <laughs> to have such a father or to be born into such a family. <clears throat> his his karma was not a heck of a lot different than Gautama in some sense, and he also became an arhat. And the family also benefited tremendously spiritually. So abandonment is um, the least of the dynamics, actually. It was just the way it started. And so what I want to do is first read the write-up of uh, Rahula's mm, uh, life story a bit, briefly, from the wisdomlib.org site, the first link. Uh, let me see if it's the first link. Yep, the first link. Uh, on Rahula Terra. Terra means elder. Terravada means the way of the elders or elder way. Terra, elder, vada, way. Like vaga, vada. So this is a write-up of <clears throat> his situation Interestingly, there was also all sorts of embellishment of uh, who he was and what he was all about in later Buddhism. <laughs> There's, uh, on that same page, um, further up the line, uh, on the in the section, uh, General Definition in Hinduism, it's really more from Tibetan Vajrayana, Rahula the Elder, Right? He was a child and grew up, became an elder, uh, meaning Tara, Rahula Tara, actual son of Buddha Shakyamuni, the tenth arhat from the set of sixteen great arhats 
that came later, this notion of 16 great. But there was some presentation by Gautama of the greatest disciples or the foremost disciples in several dozen fields. And there's a whole f- section of Pali Canon, Gautama's direct utterances regarding his understanding of the Sangha members who were considered foremost in this or that quality. And I think Rahula was the foremost in um, trainability or receptivity. And the root of his excellent karma, it seems to me, is that he was profoundly a sincere and excellent student. Uh, a A most excellent student. And that's... Um, we'll look into that more later uh, as a little foreshadowing that's close to the core I believe of um, such excellent karma he had back a step to the later (laughs) fanciful depictions Uh, it says Rahula has a number of different ways in which he is depicted in Vajrayana, (laughs) in Tibetan art. The most common depiction in Tibetan art is for him to be holding up a jeweled crown with both hands. Chinese depictions, Mahayana. So Tibetan is Vajrayana, Chinese is Mahayana. Chinese depictions often have him holding a staff in one hand and a tiger or lion seated at his feet. And so... (laughs) This whole thing is just the unnecessary embellishment that happened with Chinese Mahayana and Tibetan Vajrayana. It has nothing to do with him, actually, directly, in my view. And this is just <laughs> just a SMH kind of uh, shake-my-head little matter. <clears throat> this is what happens uh, as religions um, go to seed and overripen, and, and uh, people who um, are profoundly, uh, pe- people who are uh, lineage holders, <clears throat> or um, exponents, or um, leading figures in a religion, are mythologized. It's not very helpful, and um, uh, that was done to him in later times. But from the Theravada, down the page, point one, Rahula Tara, only son of Gautama Buddha. He was born, and this is, there's some, there are different opinions on that. He was born on the day on which his father left the household life, when, <clears throat> and the term Rahula means fetter, or binding, like a fetter tying a person, keeping a, an animal stuck to, a, a, you know, a, a a field tied or tethered. Rahula means feather. When the Buddha visited Kapilavatu for the first time after his enlightenment and accepted Suddhodana, Suddhodana's invitation, that's his father, Rahula's mother, Gautama's wife, previous wife, Rahula's mother, Rahula Mata, I think it means Rahula's mother, sent the boy to the Buddha to ask for his inheritance and that is a story that's repeated in many places. So he goes to Gautama, who is a monk, uh, seven years after birth, after his birth, and his mother sent him to ask for his inheritance. <laughs> like, make my son the king or the, the heir to your princely estate or something. The Buddha gave him no answer, and at the conclusion of the meal, meaning the Suddhodana, the father, um, prepared a meal for Gautama and the monks, and his mother, Rahula's mother, sent him to ask for his inheritance. At the end of the meal, uh, Gautama left the palace. Rahula followed him, reiterating his request until at last the Buddha asked Sariputta to ordain him. Sariputta and Mahamogalana were in the category of the two chief disciples. And then there was a category of foremost disciples. And that includes uh, the disciples or Buddhists that are lay people, men and women, both. So there's actually multiple categories of foremost disciple 
and they're divided into the types of foremost skill and they're, it's a very interesting listing of uh, what's possible for development magically and ethically and intellectually <clears throat> and interpersonally or socially various um, virtues and beneficent qualities of mind and powers of mind and intellectual abilities and relations with the community that those disciples, both monk and lay pe monk and nun and male and female lay people, all of them, were classed into by Gautama. But for <clears throat> Sariputta, uh, he's one of the two chief disciples. So, um, <laughs> countering the notion of abandonment, actually, what happened was Gautama gave him requested that one of the two chief disciples be his direct tutor. So Buddha asked Gautama, uh, Gautama asked Sariputta to ordain him at age seven. <clears throat> and then, uh, according to another source, the other chief disciple, Bahamogalana, taught him Kamavacha. Kama means karma. Vacha is voice or, um, uh, I think, teachings on Kama, karma. When the father, when, when the king... <clears throat> Gautama's father, Suddhodana, heard of this, the ordination of Rahula, Rahula at age seven. He protested to the, to the Buddha and asked as a boon that in the future no child should be ordained without consent of his parents, and to this the Buddha agreed. <clears throat> and so that this is exactly how Buddhist rules and ethical regulations were formed. As I said, um somebody had a problem with something or somebody made a problem and a rule was promulgated and um, <clears throat> you can see Gautama is not not into opposing but he certainly need, needed to go his own way and so he couldn't make his uh, father happy by staying as a prince or taking over the kingdom he couldn't make his wife happy by staying with the family and the young child <clears throat> but he left and did his own thing but didn't neglect them at all, and in fact there was a huge service done to the family going on. It's said that immediately after Rahula's ordination, the Buddha preached to him constantly many suttas for his guidance. Rahula himself was eager to receive instruction from the Buddha, and his teachers, and he and his teachers would rise early in the morning and Actually, he would take a handful of sand, saying, May I have today as many words of counsel from my teachers as there are here grains of sand. So he, he loves learning. The monks constantly spoke of Rahula's amenability, meaning they were very impressed with how receptive and, and eager to learn he was. And one day the Buddha, aware of the subject of their talk, went amongst them, the monks who were talking about his son, and related the uh, Tipalata Miga Jataka, which is a past life story, <clears throat> and another Jataka tale about Rahula's past lives and Gautama's past lives, showing them that in past births too, Rahula had been known for his obedience. So you've got um, a soul who loves to learn and profoundly, sincerely appreciates guidance and counsel from those that are wise and worthy. And that, I'd say, is the root of his excellent karma. When Rahula was seven years old, and this is when he ordained, the Buddha preached to him the Ambala, Ambalatika, Ambalatika Ruhulovada Sutta about him, as a warning that he should never lie even in fun, because there were certain times he was mischievous, and they had asked, is the, is the Buddha present? He said, no. <clears throat> when the Buddha was present, somebody asked, he said, uh, he's not here. So there was all sorts of, he was just a little bit mischievous little boy, <laughs> playing games like saying, he, I guess he liked the position that he's sort of the second, he's the son of the big man. And um, so when people would ask him, is Gautama here? Uh, periodically, when Gautama was there, he'd say no. When Gama Gautama was gone, he'd say yes. Uh, and it was just playing. But here, Gautama's preaching to him that he should never lie, even in fun. 
Uh, and this is the metaphysics of honesty. <clears throat> this is another point that is um, deeper metaphysically when we scratch the surface that um, there are profound effects on the mind, uh, very subtle, from any type of lie. Uh, even fun, even very white, small lie. And there's harm to self and other that is subtle and <clears throat> may uh, lead to further trouble by a habit of regularly making little lies, I even fooling people. You see, his lying was fooling people. And lying um, is basically, um, at a certain level of analysis, <clears throat> I've thought that lying, uh, deliberately telling untruth, different than saying what you think, acknowledging that I'm not sure, but deliberately telling an untruth, um, splits the conscious mind from the deep mind. It, it establishes <clears throat> distance and conflict between conscious mind and deep mind, because the deep mind knows truth, and the conscious mind is thereby rejecting that. Surely there's harm to other by that type of deliberate untruth, because you're basically splitting people from what they already know. <clears throat> the idea that that the metaphysical and the, in, and the physical are inseparable, the deep mind of time-space, um, what intuition may pick up, um, knows the truth that the conscious mind um, is 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 asking. In the case of asking about this or that, one already knows. That's why one surely can answer one's own questions. Like, if you want to know something, ask yourself. Um, and deliberate lying, <clears throat> even little ones, actually uh, are harm to self and other and impair um, the development of uh, certainly fifth chakra, <laughs> the, the wisdom chakra, uh, but, put, but basically add um, blockage to the, the chakra channel uh, going up the line from one to seven. So Rahula used to accompany the Buddha on his begging rounds. Sometimes he would accompany Shariputta, right, the second chief disciple um, given to him or, or asked to be his tutor. When he was present, meaning uh, Rahula, when Sariputta went to his, Sariputta's mother's house, where he was roundly abused by her for having left her. So in the Buddha Sangha, <clears throat> Sariputta, uh, along with Mahamogalana, are basically seen as, is, was basically seen as a profoundly great man by hundreds, thousands, however many people are in the monk, nun, and lay people community. Meanwhile, he goes to his mother and she chews him out. <laughs> Sounds like uh, these things happen. So, Rahula noticed then um, that he harbored carnal thoughts, meaning sexual desire, fascinated by his own physical beauty and that of his father. Um, I think it's basically carnal to the degree of its um, uh, body, physical flesh cherishing. I love the contours of uh, this, this body, or the, the skin and the radiance of the flesh, and I'm attracted to it, or Carnal, not not necessarily meaning sexual, but sort of um, meat, <laughs> flesh, carne, like carne asada, uh, carne, uh, sensual, associated, and you'll see this in the sutta that Gautama was addressing that type of subtle um, sensual attachment, subtle, subtle, subtle sensual attachment of a kind of uh, fascination cherishing of the body uh, and that's <laughs> this, this is sort of what happens is when people clean up their act morally they clean it up karmically uh, consequences uh, become more and more harmonious including 
the um, establishing of a, of a beautiful, strong, healthy, lovely to behold physical form. And so then one has to grow naturally in detachment from the positive consequences of following the path. And so, um, developed mind and karmically uh, earned um, fine featured body for a man, for a woman, uh, as a consequence of virtue, morality. Katama said that beauty of face, particularly, is associated with love-based uh, communication, or basically uh, compassion and metta in speech, right speech in line with the Brahma-viharas, or love, leads to beauty, and the opposite, the opposite. So ugly face comes from angry, ugly speech, from angry mind, um, angry speech, or angry speech, ugly mind, leads to ugly body face. That's the theory. That's the view. And I think that's probably correct. So anyway, he got some attachment to his body and his father's body or face and its attractiveness, its beauty. The Buddha then preached to him at the age of 18 this Maha Rahulovada Rahula Rahulovada Sutta. And then there are other suttas and we'll see that there were that's the one we're going to look into today. Uh, the suttas preached by Gautama to his son in um, in reference to um, his uh, very minor bad habit of mischievously telling white lies as a little boy and some attachment to the beauty of physicality of himself or his father. Uh, those became topics of his of Gautama's preaching or teaching and his son's meditation or practice, then there's another one. And so that's one background of him. There's another longer story that I is the next link, the link there that is um, Wisdom Lib. Actually, I changed your order. It's the... Papa... Uh, it's actually the second. Uh, there's a book called The Buddha and His Disciples, uh, written by uh, a monk, Damika, who was an Australian, or is an Australian, who became a monk. So this is not that old, um, the book, um, but it seems to have a nice... It seems to have a nice rundown of Rahula's story, and gives us a little bit um, broader understanding of what was going on here. So these are uh, verses, chapters in this book, uh, 86 through 91, and I'd like to go through them also. So you see um, just what kind of a father Gautama was, and just what kind of a being his son was, and just how Gautama didn't abandon them, actually. So, 86. Just before Prince Siddhartha, meaning Gautama, renounced the world, his wife Yasodhara, and so that's another name for his wife, gave birth to a son, according to legend. When the birth was announced to the prince, he said, a fetter, Rahula, has been born, a bondage has been born, meaning what would have kept him in the palace. And this is how the boy got his name. And another view, it's more likely that he was named after a lunar eclipse, Rahu, that might have occurred around the time of his birth. Who knows, right? Over the centuries, all sorts of um, historical facts are um, modified, embellished, forgotten, um, <laughs> deliberately def deleted, deliberately modified, all sorts of things happen. So he could have been from a lunar eclipse or from the word Rahula Fetter. Either way, the birth of this child only served to make Prince Siddhartha, meaning Gautama's desire, to escape from what had become from him for him a golden cage even more difficult. On the evening he had finally decided to leave, the Buddha peered into the royal bedchamber to take one last look at his sleeping wife and child, but the mother's arm obscured the child's face. 
and that's <clears throat> an interesting little circumstance as well. Um, he probably, you know, <laughs> what was that? But it's certainly associated with him on his way out. He can't even get a true final look. 87, seven years after he left, and this is the story I'll read a little bit more later, the Buddha returned to Kapilavatu, the, which is the area of northern India where he was born, the Sakya clan, and the king, his father, Suddhodana, was the king of that clan's region of Kapilavatu. Yasodhara, his wife, or his the mother of the child, took the little Rahula, this is seven years later, in Kapilavatu, to listen to the Buddha's preaching. When they arrived, she said to him, This is your father, Rahula. Go and ask him for your inheritance. The child walked through the assembly and stood before the Buddha, saying, How pleasant is your shadow, O monk. When the talk had finished, <laughs> so he's a sweet boy right from the start, <clears throat> not only does he have great appreciation for even the beauty of Gautama's um, shadow, but he's bringing happiness by that kind of speech, right? To, to say kindly, to, to, to say things like that makes people happy. There's some value to say, well, that's good. You're a good mother. You're a good father. You're doing well. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. You're pretty smart. When they're true and sincere, it's nice to build people up by acknowledging their virtues and good qualities and being of appreciation. Very useful form of right speech. Helps the other and helps ourselves and strengthens the virtuous and the goodly. So even right from the start, <clears throat> he boldly walks through the assembly as a seven-year-old boy, goes straight up to the dad and says, um, how pleasant is your shadow, O monk? I don't know if he knew that was his father or what. And um, <laughs> so he won everybody over right from the start. When the talk had finished and the Buddha left, he just leaves. Rahula followed him. Maybe he knew the future. And as they walked along, Rahula said, Give me my inheritance, O monk. Of course, the Buddha no longer had gold or property, but he had something far more precious, the Dharma, Dhamma. This is a Mahayanist uh, translation. So he turned to Shariputta and said, Shariputta, ordain him. Later, the Buddha's father, Suddhodana and Yasodhara, the boy's mother, complained that the boy had been taken away without their permission. True. As a result of which, the Buddha made it a rule that parental consent was necessary before someone could be ordained. Now, in the other page <laughs> on Suddhodana, Def Wisdom Lib definition Suddhodana, the, fa the father, Gautama's father, <laughs> there's an interesting story that <clears throat> uh, from the, one of the last paragraph, this is before Rahula entered the assembly asking for his inheritance. When news reached Suddhodana, the king, that his son, Gautama, had reached enlightenment, he sent a messenger to Velovana, Veluvan, in Rajagaha, Rajgir, with 10,000 others to invite the Buddha to visit Kapilavatu. But the messenger and his companions heard the Buddha's preach, entered the order, and forgot their mission. <laughs> Nine times this happened, so they say. On the tenth occasion, Suddhodana sent Kalu, Kaludai, Kaludai with permission for him to enter the order, because <laughs> he keeps losing his messengers to uh, ordination. <clears throat> so the next time, or the tenth time, supposedly, he sends another messenger, giving him permission to take ordination, on the express condition that he gave the king's invitation to the Buddha. So the only way to get a message to, go to, <laughs> to the Buddha would have been to <laughs> permit ordination, because once they're in, they're gone. Kaludai kept his promise, and the Buddha visited Kapilavatu, staying in the Nigrona Dharma. Dharma. And so <clears throat> he's teaching. Uh, the next day, there, in reference to a shower of rain that fell, he preached the Vesantara Jataka, which is a story of his own past lives. The next day, still in Kapilavatu, 
when Suddhodana the king remonstrated with the Buddha because he was seen begging in the streets of Kapilavatu, right? The prince, son of the great king, is begging in the streets with a bowl for food. The Buddha told him that begging was the custom of all Buddhas, and Suddhodana, hearing this, became a Sotapanna. Oh, like that. Now, what's real and what is mytholo- mythologization, mythology? Who knows? Um, but I have no doubt that these things are possible. Meaning, it's very common in the history of Buddhism that uh, people got it, meaning had first level awakening, Sotapanna stream entry, at hearing something, at hearing a teaching, at hearing a turning word, meaning something that a teacher spoke directly for them, uh, and all sorts of utterances and all sorts of events became that which led to um, awakening or first level um, enlightenment. First level. People should understand enlightenment is not a one-shot deal. You don't have an experience of bliss or selflessness or unity or non-duality or cosmic consciousness or ecstasy, intelligent infinity, contact with intelligent infinity. It's not that you have it once and then you're finished. Everybody should know that. Most people out and about in the New Age don't seem to know that. They think, oh, he's enlightened. Bup. Because what? He had one experience? Because he had one experience, he's finished? Seven chakras are perfected because of one experience? No, not at all. In any case, <clears throat> uh, hearing that begging was the custom of all the Buddhas, the king Suddhodana became Suddhapana. Boom. He invited the Buddha to the palace where he entertained him. At the end of the meal, Buddha preached to the king who became a Sakata, Sakatagami. Boom, he becomes a, non-return, a once-return, non-returner or a once-returner. Then later he becomes an Anagami. Gami is um, returner or birth and Ana means no and Saka, Sakada means one, once. So once-returner to a non-returner after hearing another Jataka preaching of past lives. So, not too bad. <clears throat> uh, Gautama helped his father become a third stage uh, ar- uh, adept. Then, <laughs> the back to the other page from uh, Venerable Dhammika, the book, The Buddha and His Disciples, <clears throat> uh, 88, as if to make up for the seven years he was without a father, the Buddha took great interest in Rahula's moral and spiritual education, teaching him many times himself and making Sariputta his preceptor and Moggallana his teacher, the two chief disciples. Rahula responded to this excellent tutelage by being an eager and attentive student. He was already. And it is said that each morning as he awoke, again the same quote, he'd take a handful of sand and say, May I have today as many words of counsel from my teacher as here there are or there are here grains of sand. <clears throat> as a result of this enthusiasm, the Buddha said of his son that of all his disciples, he was the most anxious for training, meaning the most eager and receptive for training. And in that category of foremost disciple, he was the foremost disciple uh, of those eager and receptive for training. So in that category, Rahula was um, the foremost disciple. When he was still a boy, the Buddha discussed with him aspects of Dharma or Dhamma that were suitable for the young and in such a way as he could understand and remember. And that is another dynamic here which is interesting. Take off my uh, warmer clothing here. What's interesting is that <clears throat> teachings to Rahula um, began when he was seven, continued, I guess, all his life, but he became an Arahant at 18. Oh. So <laughs> he's got the two chief disciples as his preceptor or his tutor. He's got the <laughs> world Chakravartin, world... Uh, wheel of dharma turning great teacher founder Gautama as his father um, and he was well appreciated by the monks you know there was some 
politics in the monk community, and they were they didn't <laughs> they were a little bit proud. Some of them, some of them, and um, yet they found no fault with him. And so, <laughs> for these uh, kind of cranky, cranky uh, near arhats, some of them, um, a bit proud. You know, pride is one of the last fetters to go. And so, uh, there are third stage arhat, third stage ar- adept. An arhat is fourth stage, but adept, fourth, third stage, meaning quite awakened, non-returner, um, quite free, um, but not totally of aggression and desire still with the fetter of pride and conceit eighth fetter and um, yet they found no fault with him but one of the values of the story of Rahula and these teachings is that they're very simple because he was seven (laughs) and he had full final awakening at 18 and these are examples of very this is this is sort of a, a, a window to Gautama teaching his son directly, but Buddhism for um, a very receptive and and high, highly developed mind, but very young, young and immature of worldly experience in this lifetime, but highly receptive and mature, sort of immature and mature spiritually mature, worldly immature, intellectually immature, right? He's not even 18, he's 7 at the beginning here. Uh, Teachings for that kind of mind are very interesting and useful um, for us. So, 89, the story goes, once he got a pot of water, Gautama, and calling Rahula to his side said to him, Rahula, do you see the small amount of water in this pot? Yes, sir. Gautama goes on, Even so, little is the training of those who have no shame at intentional lying. And that was addressing his mischievous lying. Little is the training of those who have no shame at intentional lying. Right? The shameless. (laughs) Many, many uh, humans around like that, or some. The Buddha then threw the water on the ground and said, Do you see this small amount of water that I have thrown away? Yes, sir. Even so, Rahula, thrown away is the training of those who have no shame at intentional lying. The Buddha then turned the pot over and said, Do you see this pot that has been turned over? Yes, sir. Even so, turned over is the training of those who have no shame at intentional lying. The Buddha then turned the pot upright again and said, Do you see this pot now empty and void? Yes, sir. Even so, Rahula, empty and void is the training of those who have no shame at intentional lying. The Buddha then impressed upon his son the importance of speaking the truth. Rahula, for anyone who has no shame at intentional lying, there is no evil that that person cannot do. Therefore, you should train yourself like this. I will not tell a lie, not even in jest, meaning in a a mischievous, joking way. Having explained what has to be done, the Buddha went on to explain to Rahula how it could be done. What do you think about this, Rahula? What is the purpose of a mirror? The purpose of a mirror is to look at yourself, said his son. Pretty straightforward. Even so, Rahula, one should act with body, speech, and mind, meaning um, behavior, speech, and thought, only after first looking at oneself. Before acting with body, speech, or mind, one should think, what I am about to do, will it harm me or others? If you can answer yes, it will, then you should not act. But if you can answer no, it will not, then you should not act. Or sorry, then you should act. No, it will not, meaning no, it will not harm, then you should act. You should reflect in the same way while acting and having after having acted. Therefore, Rahula, you should train yourself thinking, we will act only after repeatedly looking at ourselves, only after reflecting on ourselves. It's a very pith teaching, 
um, look before you leap, think before you speak, uh, take it a little slower. And uh, there are two things to point out here. One is intentional lying is um, uh, clearly uh, harmful. But what's even worse is shameless intentional lying. And so um, fall is inevitable, um, getting up is optional, or falling down again is optional. Um, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, um, distortion is inevitable, getting stuck in distortion is optional, uh, intentional lying can happen, it won't happen if one does that training given at the end here of thinking before one acts or decides or speaks, um, considering simply will it hurt them or not? Will it harm actually them or me? And so this is, um, I mean, I've spoken about this many times and uh, I'm not perfect in it. <laughs> there are times when one has a sense it might hurt me or you, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, people have this thought, um, I don't care. <laughs> I want to do it. Okay, well, then do it. Um, and you'll experience the consequences, good and ill. And there are some cases where we have a sense, we know, you know, we know what the right thing is or the harmless way. Do the right thing means do what is harmless. It's only right because it's harmless. And it's harmless uh, to self and or other, therefore its consequences are not harmful. So if it's harmless, the consequences are not harmful. And that's pretty simple. <laughs> the value of thinking before is to some extent also um, certainly to protect ourselves from hurting self and other but to have a, it's a little um, deli more deliberate responsibility taking acknowledging responsibility if I know that what I'm about to do may hurt me or others and I do it anyway um, I may well be more willing to accept um, painful consequence. And being able to accept painful consequence is important, actually. It doesn't mean it's good to make painful consequence, but it happens. And all sorts of stuff happens in life that's painful catalyst or consequence of mm, thought, word, and deed from the, from the past. Right? Painful today is probably the consequence of distorted yesterday. And non-distorted today is probably a cause of pleasant or um, well or mild and uh, simple non non remarkable tomorrow so good today is good tomorrow and bad today comes from bad yesterday or distorted yesterday goes to painful today and clear or virtuous today goes to pleasant or helpful or supportive tomorrow. Um, it, it is obviously valuable to think before we speak, uh, at least to contemplate. I mean, we can't always do it, and nobody does, and nobody's perfect. I mean, <laughs> it's only, it's only uh, the Arhat who is really finished, actually, with all forms of desire and aversion. There's still desire and aversion, grasping and aversion, the three poisons, two of the three poisons. There's still that um, all the way up to third stage or non-returner um, because there's still a conceit and there's restlessness and there's a vidya ignorance and um, those tendencies of restlessness go to grasping and aversion at some level, um, generally in mind and states of consciousness not sensual, but that stuff remains all the way up to the end, therefore it can happen that indeed uh, one does harm, um, even in subtle ways, and Ra talked about that, Ra said it's very important basically, to paraphrase, it's extremely important as one's, uh, as one becomes more spiritually empowered over time, to be careful about how one 
acts in the world so as not to depolarize or by harming other. And so, um, harmlessness or ahimsa um, is coarse is both can be both coarse and subtle, or uh, don't kill and beat, don't lie and cheat, don't steal and cause dr- you know, harm by alcohol or sex or you know, drugs and sexuality to self and other. That's coarse. The fine is much more subtle ways of being harmless or recognition that um, we are not in full, heartful, um, unconditional acceptance, non, non-struggle, non-contending. And so deep harmlessness <laughs> is a great virtue. Um, and he's saying, Rahula, you're my son, um, think about this before you speak and uh, act. Same thing with thought, and that's much more subtle, is um, what I am about to think, will it harm me or others? <laughs> that's really difficult. Um, but we can start with speech and behavior or conduct, physical action and speech. Uh, and again, intentional lying happens. It's like we may know what I'm about to say. It may hurt me and you because I just don't want to say the truth right now. Sorry. Even a direct question may have a direct, deliberate lie response, which we may well know and be quite consciously willing to take the consequences of, which may not be very heavy, you know, but there'll be some, or is some. Um... But there's shame there. <laughs> I'm not happy that I know I'm intentionally lying or covering or something I don't want to say. And I'm willing to take the consequences. So I know it's not right or good or my path. And I wish I didn't have that situation. But I'm not going to, I'm not ready to tell the truth on this right now. Okay? And that's the difference. One way to handle that, of course, is just say, I'm not gonna, I don't want to talk about it. But most sharp people can figure out, oh, I say, that means what i asking uh, is what I suspected, uh, and that's why you don't want to answer. Okay? So, in any case, I just think it's noteworthy that intentional lying, while harmful, is in some sense not the critical problem. The critical problem, if there's a problem, would be the lack of shame at it. And the notion that a person has no a person who has no shame at intentional lying, there's no evil that person cannot do. Yeah, right. Absolutely. It's a slippery slope. Then ninety. Rahula Rahula was trained in the ten precepts, right? Um not Panchashila, but two times that. And monastic discipline Vinaya when he was uh, and when he was eighteen. The Buddha decided that he was ready for meditation. So he didn't teach him meditation from 7 to 18. And then gave him advice on how to practice. And this is a little point also to the New Agey types who teach their 8-year-olds and 12-year-olds to meditate and make them vegetarian, along with their vegetarian cat. Um, It may not be a good idea. (laughs) So even his son, who has great karma and um, already had excellent teachers, was not given, was not trained for meditation until he hit 18, which is interesting. And Gautama said this to him regarding how to practice. Rahula, develop a mind that is like the four great elements, right, earth, water, fire, air, because if you do this, pleasant or unpleasant sensory impressions that have arisen and taken hold of the mind will not persist. Just as when people throw feces, urine, spittle, pus, or blood on the earth or in the water, or in a fire or the air, the earth, the water, the fire, or the air is not troubled, worried, or disturbed. So too, develop a mind that is like the four great elements. Develop love, Rahula, which may have been the word metta, for by doing it, or prema, but it's probably metta, develop metta, 
loving kindness or friendliness or um, a, a caring heart. For by doing so, ill will will be got rid of. So the antidote to aversion is love and the Brahma Viharas. Boom. Develop compassion. So here you see actually these are the Brahma Viharas. Develop compassion, right? Uh, karuna. For by doing so, the desire to harm will be got rid of. So the desire to hurt is uh, weakened and eliminated by increased compassion and sympathy, meaning feeling heart feelingfulness at others' pain. Heart feelingfulness, sensitivity to others' pain means I feel pain when you're in pain. And by that, the roots of a desire to harm, vengefulness, right, um, any type uh, of desire to harm, will be weakened and eliminated. Then, <clears throat> develop sympathetic joy, mudita, for by doing so, dislike will be got rid of. And so, dislike as related to not appreciating others' happiness. This is envy or jealousy. Develop equanimity, upekka, for by doing so, sensory reaction will be got rid of. Develop the perception of the foul, what's disgusting, or what could be seen as disgusting. For by doing so, attachment, sensual attachment, will be got rid of. This is like a charnel ground, um, dead bodies rotting meditation. Develop the perception of impermanence, for by doing so, anicca, for by doing so, the conceit, I am, will be got rid of. Develop mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, for it is of great benefit and advantage. Following his father's advice and guidance on meditation, Rahula finally attained enlightenment. He was 18 at the time. Finally, at 18. After that, his friends always referred to him as Rahula the Lucky, Rahula Bada, and he tells why he was given this name. He's a very straight fellow. I mean, he's really sincere. <laughs> He's just like, oh, uh -huh, da da da. They, and he said, <laughs> this is another section of the Pali Canon, they call me Rahula the Lucky, they call me Rahula Bada for two reasons. One is that I am the Buddha's son, and the other is that I have seen the truth. Mm. The truth of Nirvana, or the unconditioned, or the deathless. Um, and again, it, it's commonly phrased as a seeing, a vision. It's the mind seeing, it's not a visual but it's an apprehension by mind or by awareness of what is beyond the five skandhas. The five skandhas, meaning form or body, feelings or sensations in body, which is registered in body-mind, perceptions, which are the ways of perceiving of the physical world, five, and the perceiving of mind, meaning uh, I believe, I know, I'm thinking, <laughs> I believe I can talk, and something's going on here. That's the mind sense. Fifth, uh, fourth is uh, sankara, samskara, fourth skanda, which is uh, fabrication. <laughs> and we won't, may not have time, but um, even a belief in, even a perception of emptiness may be fabricated. And so, true emptiness for those whoever is wondering about this. Um, Real sunyata includes the emptiness of any perception of emptiness. It's the realization of the emptiness of the perception of emptiness that leads to a real experience of sunya. And so void, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. The, the perception of emptiness is itself a form, a form, a thought form. <laughs> a perception, conception, um, which is not true emptiness. Anyway, he sees, or the mind apprehends, or his being, or what is that one, uh, apprehended that which is beyond the conditioned, the unconditioned, beyond a birth arising, passing away, death, beyond impermanence, beyond dukkha. And that's nirvana, that's um, complete and perfect enlightenment. So that's why he's lucky. <laughs> but he ain't lucky. He's uh, got great, he's, he's a you know, foremost in um, truth receptivity. 
foremost in truth receptivity. 91. Finally, other than this, we know very little about Rahula. He does not seem to have been prominent at being either a Dharma teacher or a trainer of other monks. It is likely that Rahula kept himself in the background so that he could not be accused of taking advantage of being the son of the Enlightened One. And so, um, he was well-liked by the Sangha, even the uh, critical, crusty elders, those that were likely to (laughs) to criticize others' lack of virtue. They didn't criticize him. And he was uh, the foremost student of Dhamma, but didn't become a major teacher, which is interesting, right? (laughs) He got his awakening and um, radiated love light with um, his freedom. That was that. Very interesting story, actually. (laughs) And then we go to the Rahula Sutta. (laughs) Finally. Uh... There we go. Well, you know what? (laughs) Uh, I guess we're going to do this in two parts, because it actually is about an hour over here. Um, Therefore, next time, (laughs) we'll read the sutta at last. And so, this first installment is the introduction to Rahula Sutta. And uh, old Bhikkhu Bodhi did Rahula Sutta in two lectures as well. So I guess I'll be following that lead. And next week we'll, I'll read, we'll be here, whoever the we is, Rahula Sutta. And from this basis today, we can certainly understand the Sutta much better, much more deeply. But I think that the, the, the principles, major spiritual principles revealed by a careful analysis of the life and times of Rahula, um, who he was, how indeed he became Gautama's son, which Gautama did discuss, actually, in some Jataka tales of past lives, uh, which seem a bit mythologized or fanciful to me, um, but that's not important, actually, even if it was or wasn't. What's important, I think, is we can tease out the, the, the primary qualities or moral characteristics, the character of this man, Rahula, who um, <laughs> was considered supremely lucky, but he was really, he, he was a being who was centered in the most essential precondition for self-development and um, continual transformation leading to a final goal, which is um, a love of truth. Hey, hey, he loved truth, too. And uh, loved it so much that (laughs) he got the karma to be born as Gautama's son, who didn't abandon him, actually, but let him uh, grow up with his mom and uh, grandfather in the palace just fine for seven years. Uh, And then took him very clearly under his wing and gave him the two top disciples in the entirety of the Sangha as his teachers, Sariputta and Mahmogalana. And um, by 18 he was an Arhat. Mm-hmm. And, but, but his character is really admirable. Really admirable, meaning um, we could aspire to be like Rahula, who loves the truth so much that he ain't quibbling and he's eager, like most um, fertile and um, use, um, mo- most most um, efficient soil. The soil that grows the greatest crop, absorbs water really well, is thirsty, absorbent, most absorbent to truth like that soil that keeps taking all the water it can get and grows a lush garden. Um, His mind was a bit like that, I think. And that ain't lucky. That's um, um, love and and a a love of truth. A real love of truth. 
so much so that he had no nobody criticized him in the sangha, and that's a pretty hard crowd, you know. <laughs> if you're well liked in the entirety of the sangha with guys who, you know, real uh, skeletal ascetic austere fellows who spent decades in jhana and they really, you know, <laughs> are spotless in conduct, they may still have pride. Um, or those that are not finished, um, to to win over that crowd, <laughs> um, one must have some very special qualities like Rahula. So, that's it for today. Next time, <laughs> the sutta itself. Uh, I hope it was useful. It's pleasant for me too. Um, thank you for being here. Take good care of yourselves, and good night.